chapter 6, verses 27 through 36, the uh, English Standard Version. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Luke chapter 6, 27 through 36. I think this is a necessary text uh, for us today and our culture. 98% of Americans right now believe that incivility is a serious problem. 68% agree that it's reached crisis level. From cyberbullying to hate speech, workplace harassment, demonizing political language, verbal abuse and intolerance, the vast majority of us, 87%, no longer feel safe in public spaces sharing our opinions. Recently, some employees from Facebook, or namely really one employee from Facebook, has been put out in front of Congress and has been kind of doing her rounds, talking about how the algorithms for Facebook has even encouraged us to construct enemies and to dislike our neighbors and people from around the world who disagree with us. As we get into this text, I want to ask you this question. Who do you consider to be your enemy? Maybe somebody from a different political party, a different religion, a different town, a different country, from Michigan, or even worse, a Michigan fan from Ohio, your in-laws, they're here this morning, not my enemy. Jesus begins this teaching with uh, this phrase, but I say to you who hear, but I say to you who hear, uh, I, I almost retranslated that for you, I say to you who listen. One of the privileges I've had over the past couple of years is to coach with a man named Don Jones. Don Jones was just nominated to the High School Coaches Hall of Fame for baseball. This man is actually a retired teacher now, but he had been coaching three sports for the past 30 years, and he was good enough at the varsity level of baseball to be nominated for four different Hall of Fames. Basically, there are three lo local Hall of Fames he's already in, and there's a fourth, the State Hall of Fame, which he was just nominated to be in, and so he's going to be nominated into that Hall of Fame. As somebody who really hasn't done a lot of coaching at a high level, I would watch him. He was our head coach. This man who's been coaching three sports at the varsity level has come down and 
uh, under Coach Vander Inc.'s uh, leadership, and he's helping build his middle school program, and I got to coach alongside of him. And so I watch him all the time because this man obviously knows how to coach. And one of the things that he would often do with the students or the, the, the team, uh, he would sometimes just have them stop. And he would, want, he would tell them, I want you to listen. And they would stop, and they would give him his attention, and he would say, what do you hear? Right now. And depending on what was going on, you would hear the varsity practice going on and Coach Vandering blowing his whistle and yelling at everybody or the cars going by. And Coach Jones would point that out. He says, you hear all that? Are you listening? He said, all of that was going on before I stopped you. But it was just noise. You were hearing it, but you weren't listening to it. Now you're listening to it. Now you're paying attention to it. Now you understand what is going on around you. And then he would go on and actually give them a lesson, hoping they would listen to what he was about to say. Really listen, not just hear it, not just allow it to be noise. That's what Jesus is asking here, the church, to do. That's what Jesus is asking the people who he is preaching to, the Sermon on the Mount, as he's in here, Luke, or the Sermon on the Hill, in this case, or the plain on this case, in Luke. And he's saying, listen up, really hear me when I teach this. And he gives four commands. And he's going to give four illustrations of love, and I'm just going to take you through them here. And so here are the four commands that Jesus gives concerning love our enemies. And the first is really simple. It's to love your enemies. Now this is interesting. Because this is a new command in the Bible. Do you realize if you read through the Old Testament, you will not find this said. In the Old Testament, God does not teach to love your enemies. It's not there as plainly as this, I should say, or as blatantly as Jesus says this. And so what Jesus is doing here is he's actually giving a new emphasis when it comes to love. In the Old Testament, we were told to love who? Our, yeah, God and our neighbors. Our neighbors. Here, Jesus is saying, listen up to me because I want you to hear this in a new way, in a more forceful way. Jesus is saying here to love your enemies. And now while Jesus was teaching this, this would have been a really interesting time for Jesus to teach this because they had real enemies. The, the Romans were occupying Israel. I mean, those are real enemies. They saw their real enemies as they went about their everyday life, even as they went into the temple to worship. I mean, in reality, the only reason they were allowed to worship is because Rome allowed them to do so. And Rome would even tweak things every once in a while. And if Rome wanted access to the holies of holies, they would take it and can go in and desecrate what they wanted to. And so as Jesus is teaching this, and as people are listening, they can just look around, and it's very clear about who their enemies are. When Luke was writing this, which is somewhere probably around anywhere between like 65 AD or 60 to 70 AD, somewhere around there, Luke is writing this for followers of Jesus. So Luke is actually writing this and recording this and sending this out for people who have decided to follow Jesus. These people at that time also had clear and real enemies. They were physically at risk, both from the Romans who didn't like the fact that these people would proclaim Jesus as Lord above, of, uh, above Caesar and Jewish people who also didn't like the statement that Jesus was God. So you have Christians here that are a, a smaller group of people in a dominant culture, and they are physically at risk 
from the state. There's state-sanctioned persecution going on, but there's also sanctioned persecution going on from the people that they used to be, which were Jewish people. And so his teachings like this that made Jesus an enemy himself of Jewish people and the religious class of his time. And so Jesus is preaching this full, knowing full well of what he's doing and what he's saying. And the people around understand what is going on as well and trying to struggle with this teaching. Jesus goes on after he says, love your enemies, and he says this. He says, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Now, I think we could all finish this sentence. Haters gonna... Haters gonna hate, right? Now, finish this sentence. Christians gonna... You guys did pretty good. Now, go out on the street and ask people to finish the sentence. Haters gonna... Then ask them to finish this sentence. Christians gonna... How do you think they would respond? Right? Probably, yeah, something else. Maybe judge. I, I don't know. Right? A lot of different things. I don't know if love would be the first thing that would pop up. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus says to do good to those who hate you. So this is more than us just saying, like, I love everybody. Like, you know, I just love everybody. Jesus actually is calling for action here. He's saying, do good. He's saying, go out and do something. Like, there is effort in loving other people. There's actually doing something. It's more than just saying it. You have to do good to those who despise you, is what Jesus says. He continues here, and he says, bless those who curse you. Bless those who curse you. Now, bless means to do good. Or maybe to put it like this, bless means to seek the benefit of someone. That's what God means when he talks about blessing you. When God blesses you, he seeks your good. He seeks your benefit. And so God blesses us in all sorts of ways. He blesses us in spiritual ways. So God can give us peace when it seems like we shouldn't have peace. He can give us strength when it seems like we shouldn't have strength. He, he can comfort us when we seem like we shouldn't be comforted. And God also blesses people materially in the Old Testament and through the Bible as well. And so sometimes God blesses us with finances. Sometimes God blesses us by somebody showing up and maybe giving us something that we needed in that instant or that moment. And this is how God blesses us. God figures out ways to find ways to benefit us as we go through, throughout our life. Cursing, on the other hand, is the opposite of blessing. So cursing, when somebody curses you, it's not like they're getting a little doll out and just putting like needles in it or whatever and casting spells or whatever that might, might mean. Actually, to, to curse you actually means to kind of seek to physically harm you or seek to spiritually harm you. They are, they are trying to do something to you, not for your benefit, but to your detriment. And so Jesus here is telling you that there are going to be people out there that will try to cause harm to you. And when they do you are still to do good for them. There are people out there that actually really will become your enemies. Jesus doesn't teach that just because you follow me that you won't have enemies or in this world that you won't have enemies. He acknowledges that there are enemies in this world. There are people who want to curse you. There are people who want to do harm to you. And not only that, but there are people who will curse you. There are people who will do harm to you. And Jesus says to bless them. 
he goes on to say this. Pray for those who abuse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Are you tired of this teaching yet? I, I mean, seriously, though. Like, w when I read that, with kind of like my modern sensibilities, pray for those who abuse you. It sounds oppressive. Right? I mean, how many people, if you told somebody was taking advantage of you, somebody was harming you, somebody was doing something to you that they shouldn't do to you, and one of the things that you began doing with them was praying for them, with them. Imagine you went to a counselor, and that counselor started teaching you this. Would you go back? Honestly, would you go back? So the question is, is how, how serious do we take this stuff as followers of Jesus? How, how seriously do we apply this stuff to our life? Well, what did Jesus do? So we see Jesus go throughout his life, and he's teaching things like this. Jesus is abandoned by all of his friends at the end of his life. He then is thrown under the bus by his own people who shout, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, who did what they could to make sure Jesus was tortured and then hung on the cross. The state followed up with making sure that happened. And so you get towards the end of Luke, Luke's gospel, and you see a man who was abandoned, tortured, and then hung on the cross to die. And this is what he says about all of these people. Father, Forgive them, for they not know what they do. And after that, these people begin to play games and cast lots so that they can keep his clothes as souvenirs. What about his followers? How did they react? First century people who knew Jesus, who knew his apostles, these friends that once abandoned him, came back after they saw the resurrection and were given hope. It's like, oh, wow. If the guy who rises from the dead teaches this stuff, maybe we should take it seriously. What did they do? How did they live their lives? In the book of Acts, which Luke wrote, by the way, the book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit starting the church. It's a book where we see God's Spirit and dwelling God's people and them acting in amazing and incredible ways. And in this book, we see a man named Stephen. Stephen, by the time you get to chapter 7 in the book of Acts, is he is preaching to everybody, and he's actually letting everyone know, hey, by the way, it was us, it was our people who 
sent Jesus to the cross and he tells them, like, you killed him. You did this. And Jesus rose from the dead and he is God. And, and he said, by the way, you've been denying God like your entire existence is basically what Stephen says as he's preaching the gospel. And what they do is they take Stephen before all of them and they begin stoning Stephen. So they're throwing stones at Stephen with the intent to kill him. And they do. They kill Stephen, but before he dies, he says this, chapter 7, verse 60, tells us this is what happened to Stephen. And falling to his knees, he cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's another way to put, after he had said that, he died. So what we see at the end of Jesus' life, as we see Jesus, who taught us this, as he's hanging on the cross, praying for forgiveness for his enemies. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, the first Christian to put this t teaching to the test. We see him falling on his knees and pleading to God on behalf of his enemies. Pretty powerful thing. Now, what I think might be most intriguing about both of those stories, about both of those examples, is this. Is that persecution was part of God's plan. Think about that for a second. Persecution, in this instance, was a part of God's plan. Do you know that God planned Jesus' death? Do you realize that? Jesus going to a cross was not a surprise to the Father. He knew that was going to happen. He knew that he was going to send his son into the world and that he was going to be persecuted himself, that he was going to be tortured, that he was going to be abandoned, and that he was going to die a death on the cross. Why? So that God's enemies would become his children. Stephen. Stephen's persecution, I do not believe, was a surprise to God. Stephen's persecution was planned by God. And here's why I, I believe this. If you read the book of Acts, what you discover in the very first chapter, Jesus is still um, walking and talking around after he had risen from the dead, and he tells the apostles, he tells the early, early church, he said, here's what you're going to do, is you are going to begin in Jerusalem, then you're going to go to Judea, then you're going to go to Samaria, and then you're going to go to the ends of the earth, and you're going to pro proclaim the gospel. You're going to tell people about this. You're going to tell people about me. So before all that happens, you're going to stay in Jerusalem, and the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on you. But after that happens, you're going to go. Like, you're going to be spread throughout the entire earth. Well, what happens in the book of Acts, if you read through the first five chapters, is that the church explodes. Is that the Holy Spirit is poured out, and people began to follow Jesus. The church begins to grow. And the church in the, those, those few chapters, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. I mean, people are sharing their goods. People are getting saved. Like it, there, there's just like one problem, and it's basically like people are upset because widows aren't being taken care of, and so they just solve the problem. They're like, okay, well, these people are going to preach. These people are going to take care of the widows. And so what you have, have is that the church is growing and things are really happening here. And so it's, it's a really cool thing. 
But I think also probably what begins to happen is that they just begin to kind of focus on themselves. And so they got this great church that's beginning to grow and thrive in Jerusalem, and they're kind of around singing these great worship songs and singing Kumbaya, but they're not, they're not wanting to leave. But that was what God had told them that they were supposed to do. And so what happens? What happens? Well, and let me, I'm going to give you an example of this before we get to what happens here. Uh, Acts 6, 7 through 8, and it says, The word of God continued to increase, and great number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So we see the church growing here, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So now they have these Jewish priests who are coming obedient to the faith. Now think about who can really teach now about Jesus or Old Testament uh, priests. And so the church is growing that way. And we give this character here named Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so the question here for them, right, is who really wants to leave a great thing? God wanted them to. God wanted them to. So what happens? He sends persecution. He sends persecution. So what happens next? Stephen dies. He's stoned there. A couple verses later, chapter 8, verse 4 of Acts. Luke wrote this. Now those, of, those who were scattered, those who were scattered, why are they scattered? Because of persecution. They left because of persecution. They left because they witnessed Stephen and others being stoned and killed and chased after because they were following Jesus. And what did they do when they left? They went about preaching the word. God sent persecution so they could go out and preach the word. A few verses later, we're introduced to a man named Saul. Saul becomes Paul. Paul over Saul, and he witnessed the death of Stephen. Saul, who becomes Paul, becomes the greatest evangelist in the first century. He witnessed the persecution of Stephen and how Stephen reacted during that persecution. You see, we so often see persecution, if we can even call it that sometimes, sometimes it's just being made to feel uncomfortable. And our enemies as threats. But God often sees them as opportunities. Moving on here, I want to show you four illustrations of love that were given uh, through verse 30. When we think about this teaching. Um, and it says this, Jesus says this, The one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. So I'm going to need a volunteer. Jason? I was joking, man. He was, okay. Um, so where's Jesus getting at here? What does this mean? Well, a slap on the cheek is an insult. If somebody were to slap you on the cheek, you would not only just feel the pain of the slap, especially in the first century, but it was an insult. Now, I'm going to guess some of you probably feel it's almost impossible to be insulted without responding in kind. This is one of Emily's favorite verses in our household with our kids. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because this, this is to what you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. That's hard to do. Hard to do. Howard Thurman, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, 
which is probably uh, one of the great unknown books of the civil rights movement, but maybe one of the most important that people have never read. Howard Thurman, in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, has this theory that when Jesus is preaching and teaching, he's preaching and teaching to those primarily who have their backs up against the wall, right? to those who are the minority, to those who are being persecuted, to those where it is very difficult to live life amongst the majority. He says these are the people that Jesus was actually preaching to, whether you realize it or not. The people who are living in a time where they are constantly being insulted and humili humiliated. This is Jesus, the context for Jesus' preaching. He wrote this book in 1949. You can imagine uh, how difficult it was for him, a black man, and growing up in the United States and primarily even in the South. And as he writes this, one of the groups that he points out in the Bible that Jesus is preaching te teaching to are a group of zealots. Now, we know that at least Simon was a zealot that Jesus called to be his disciple. That's why he's called Simon a zealot in the Bible. But it's also pretty likely that Jesus had probably three or four close disciples who become apostles that were zealots themselves. Zealots were the people who actually believed that to uh, change Rome, that it was going to take violence that they should call their brothers and sisters to arms to overthrow Rome and take their land back. And so you see it, if you've ever heard of the Maccabean Revolt, those are zealots. Um, there are holidays de de devoted to, to the Jewish zealots, um, people who wanted to take up arms and do so violently. Jesus called these people to come follow him, and he taught them things like this, to love their enemies. So Jesus called them, to change their mind about the way that they should view the world and go about their lives. So Thurman is writing primarily to a black audience during this time, and he's trying to get them to understand the teachings of Jesus and the implications of what it means to follow Jesus. To understand this, I, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of a black man in maybe 1949 through the 60s, maybe longer, depending on how you view history. And think about this. You weren't allowed to use the same drinking fountains, same restrooms. You had to ride in the back of the bus. Certain jobs were closed off to you. Certain houses or housing was not available to you. And men, I want you to think about this. Grown men in this room, think about how you would react to this. If you were a grown man, and half the places you went, somebody looked at you and called you boy. How would you want to respond? Now let's pretend for a moment a, name, a, a man named Malcolm X shows up. And he is calling you to react violently, to take up arms, to respond physically to the oppression and persecution. You have somebody preaching that. 
And then another man shows up named Martin Luther King Jr. who were told carry two books with him at all times. Jesus and the Disinherited and the Bible. Preaching love your enemies. Who do you follow? Who do you follow if somebody insults you? I used to get the question quite a lot. I don't get it as much as I do anymore. Maybe because I'm getting older, but they used to ask me, how do you reach young people? How do you reach young people? I think they wanted a bunch of like apologetical answers. Well, you have to you know, be able to make them understand this truth about the Bible, this truth about the Bible, this or that or whatever. That used to be the way we did apologetics. It's still helpful. I think it's really helpful. But I, I think as I think about it more, as I have more conversations with people, it's, it's really simple right now. It's not simple to reach people for Christ. But people are looking at our lives. Young people are looking at our lives and they're just asking this one simple question. Do we live and love like Jesus? Do we believe what he says? Do we want to do what he teaches even when it's hard? Even when it's not intuitive? I think that's what they want to know. Jesus continues and says, from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. So Jesus moves from the physical and psychological insults to just plain robbery. Someone who takes your jacket, now you're to give them your shirt as well. Be shirtless. So is there a point where Jesus says, like, revenge is okay? Love doesn't seek revenge, according to Christ. He goes on. We're going to move through these quick. Give to everyone who begs from you. This is the illustration of somebody asking you for money and help. And you give it. Love gives to those who are in need. And then Jesus ends this part of the teaching like this. These illustrations at least. From the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Now, it's pretty quiet in here. <laughs> I think you could hear a pen drop. And you should right now, because you're listening. You are really listening right now to what Jesus is saying. And how shocking is this? This should shock us. If you think the Bible should be taken seriously, if you think Jesus should be taken seriously or believed in absolute terms all the time. This should shock you. These are radical illustrations and commands that are supposed to radically change the character of the listener. Think about this. If we followed all of this to a T, if every person in this room followed everything that Jesus just said here to a T, we'd end up beaten, abused, naked and broke 
It's true. Are you going to turn the other cheek every time somebody slaps you? Should you? I mean, that's a real good question to ask. In what context? I mean, let's be honest. Maybe there's sometimes, like, you should get out of the room if people are slapping you. If your husband is slapping you around, you should probably get out of the house. You should probably go get some help. Christians fled persecution. A lot of Christians got out so they wouldn't die in the first century. People do that now. People have been doing that for thousands of years. It's actually how Christianity has spread. I think it's one of the ways that Christianity will be revived in the United States. People from other countries fleeing persecution. Know what it's like to suffer for Christ. Not care about half the stuff that we argue about. Care more about following Christ. Are you going to give to everyone who begs from you? You will if you want to end up broke. (laughs) While at the same time, if you're not characterized by others as generous, or at least by your accountant, you're ignoring the the teachings of Jesus to love. It's very evident. So if we don't take this, I mean, literally, in in the sense that we do this every time, what's the point? What's the point? The point is this, is that Jesus' ethical call and demand to love everyone, even our enemies, is strong, comprehensive, and serious. Jesus isn't messing around with this whole love thing. Jesus' love for others surpasses surpasses the world's concept of love. And so should ours. I'm going to conclude with how Jesus kind of just concludes this paragraph here. And he says this, he says with verse 31, as you wish others would do to you, do also to them. Howard Thurman, when addressing the concept of loving your enemies, he says this, the love of enemy means that, the, uh, that a fundamental attack must first be made on enemy status. And then he describes how we do this. He said this, Consider the person in front of you to be just like you. Get to know your enemies. People who God came to forgive, save, and love just like you. This is not in your notes, so this is, for, this is extra credit here. Ephesians 2, 3 through 5. Paul is writing to the church, the one man who used to carry out persecution. Now he is be, being persecuted for the sake of Christ. He says, among whom all we, all, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. There was a time when we were just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, which he made us alive together in Christ, by grace you have been slaved. And so what Paul says is that we were once all enemies of God. We were once all enemies of God, and we have been saved by the love of God and grace of God. 
So we must give grace and love to others the way God has shown it to us. We must see everyone as a potential or future friend of God. Social media, major news organizations, and our political parties right now are making hay by creating and encouraging us to have enemies and hate them. This is how they make their money right now. This is how they get people elected right now, by appealing to some of our worst emotions. And God calls us to respond and love in every situation. Does this mean that God will allow the guilty to go unpunished? No. No. God will judge the living and the dead. God will separate the wheat from the chaff, and he will separate the goats from the sheep. From the sheep. But he will also have mercy on who he will have mercy on. And we are people who believe that God has mercy on us while we were still sinners. And we believe that God sent Jesus to show us that God loves his enemies and calls all to salvation. So if God shows love for his enemies and we are his followers, shouldn't we do the same? Let's pray. Father, this is one of those teachings from Jesus. Which has to sit on our hearts and in our minds. In a way that will transform us and to change us. And to the type of people that you would have us to be. It's one of those teachings that we wrestle with. that so many of us struggle with. To love our enemies. To pray for those who abuse and persecute us. We admit that we don't always do this well. Uh, both in public and private conversations that we prefer to trade insult for insult. That we even at times prefer to flame the fire of hate. That at times we even find ourselves creating enemies of people who should be our friends.
So, Father, we pray for your help. We pray that you would pour out love on our hearts, not just for our neighbors, not just for those who think like us, who live beside us, who act like us, people maybe who are in this room. We know that is extremely important, and we thank you for love for them. But we pray that you help us to do this hard thing, to love our enemies. We pray that we would remember your son Jesus at all times. Who loved us, not while we were his friends, but enemy. We pray that you help us to remember the great, great examples of the martyrs in the past, beginning with Stephen. who didn't mince words on who Jesus was or what he wanted for the world. But still loved the people in front of him enough to pray for them and want salvation for them. Father, we, help, we pray all of us pray that you help us to love more because your word tells us that God is love and we seek to be godly people. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.